Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good afternoon. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the law. This is host Mitchell Winnick, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law. And as always, I'm joined by my illustrious co-host, Stephen Wagner, law professor so and attorney. <laughs> How's that, Stephen? <laughs> illustrious today. Sorry, I almost crashed the introduction. I like that. That's raising a high bar, Mitch. <laughs> How are you today, Stephen? I'm well. It's Looking forward to talking about, uh, we're going to talk about mediation in the consumer context. Actually, we're going to talk about arbitration, which is close, you know, mediation, but we'll make that distinction here in a minute. We're going to talk about consumer arbitration and why that either does or doesn't uh, work to the benefit of the parties. Uh, we're going to focus on consumer, but as you know, Stephen, as you and I know, we've got a large business audience as well, so we're really going to talk about how it affects business to business as well. So today, so we're talking about the the arbitration clauses that are that reside in a lot of contracts, that's, right? That's exactly right, and I and I know that doesn't hasn't always come up in your role as a prosecutor, but in your role as a private attorney representing businesses, I'm sure that's come up from time to time. Yes, absolutely. So let's let's get jump right into it here. For our guest, we're very fortunate since, again, as we aren't actual experts on this topic of the law, and when we have that opportunity, we bring in an expert. Our guest today is Daniel Lamb. Daniel is a trial and appellate lawyer with over 40 years of experience representing companies and financial institutions in federal and state courts in a broad mix of litigation, including unfair competition, trade regulation, consumer class actions, trademark and copyright infringement, fiduciary liability, and a variety of other civil litigation issues that involve both individuals and corporations. So, Daniel, welcome to our show today. Thanks, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you here. So, so as Stephen and I talked about, we're going to talk today about consumer arbitration primarily. We're going to also talk about business-to-business -business arbitration. But for our, our listeners, we've we talked about mediation and arbitration before in the show, but it's been quite some time. So let's, let's start off at the top of, give us a little bit of a definition for the non-lawyers out there. What is the difference between mediation and arbitration? Well, arbitration is private judging, in effect. It's an alternative to going to court. Two people have a dispute. Instead of filing a lawsuit, they agree between themselves that they'll pick a third party who will hear the evidence and then resolve the dispute. And there'll be a decision at the end of it. And arbitration can either be binding or non-binding, although most of the time, in my experience, it's binding, which means once you get that decision, that's it. That is controls it. Controls the parties. You don't get to point. you don't get to appeal it to another court. You don't get to argue about it. I mean, we'll talk a little about what the criteria would be for 
appealing an arbitration finding, but for the most part, it's done. That's correct. For the most part, they're very limited right to, to have an appeal. Um, and that's one of the benefits and one of the burdens of arbitration because it's over and when it's done, it's done and the parties can go on their way and it doesn't stretch out for years. Typically, it's over quickly. Yes. Now, now, mediation, right. on the other hand, Mediation is, is a way of settling claims. A mediator doesn't make a decision. So they don't serve the as a judge. They don't serve as a judge, right. All they do is facilitate. Shouldn't say all. It's very important. But they facilitate an agreement between the parties that will resolve whatever their dispute is. And both are forms of what we call ADR or alternative dispute resolution. Yeah, that's good. So, Stephen, as a, as a practicing attorney, uh, how is it that you would... You would uh, coach a client, if they had a choice, uh, we'll talk some that they don't have a choice in some contracts, but if they had a choice between using mediation, arbitration, or pursuing litigation in court, how, do, how would you usually walk that conversation through with a client? Yeah, sure, Mitch. I'm happy to talk about that. And welcome to the program, Daniel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. So, you know, Mitch, I actually do have a few cases. Uh, we're fortunate enough in Santa Cruz County to actually have judicial mediation where one of the bench officials, a judge, will actually preside over mediation. And as Daniel indicated, it is facilitative in nature in the sense that the judge really plays the role of marshalling the facts and working with the parties so as to reach a settlement. Um, you know, you had asked me how I would uh, discuss it with clients. It's interesting because in a venue or a county where there is mediation available uh, by the court, which, by the way, is rather rare in California. Santa Cruz County is one of a few of the 58 that actually offer it. It does present a very good opportunity to save costs in certain situations. And if the client's amenable, and if it looks like opposing counsel or the other side, so to speak, is also amenable, I always encourage going that route first round because I'm mindful of the economics of it. So that's one big advantage. And if you had a chance to go to arbitration, as Daniel's talking about binding arbitration, what concerns, if any, do you have when you're talking with a client about that option? Yeah, so your term and use of the word chance to go to arbitration. I think we're going to have some discussions on that point because right. <laughs> I, I think it's very often read it and weep, certainly in a consumer setting. Um, if there's an arbitration clause or a binding arbitration clause, I think many consumers are caught by surprise. Uh, you know, in, in forming a contract, and making a decision as to whether or not you want to include an arbitration clause, I think the attorney at the drafting stage probably has a lot more leeway. But if the contract's already uh, drafted, uh, the enforcement aspect, I think, could have far-reaching effects. And I'm actually hoping Daniel can jump in yeah, on that. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about because, Daniel, you and I were talking a little earlier. What, what kind of, to put it in context... Where do we find these clauses that are binding arbitration clauses in consumer contracts and others? In, in, Give in, us some examples. Yeah, in consumer contracts, they're everywhere these days. I mean, if you, you can't open a checking account, you can't lease an apartment, you can't buy a cell phone, you can't apply join a, a health credit club. card, join a health club, enroll in an educational institution uh, without signing some sort of an agreement. 
and it's a form contract typically, and it will have an arbitration clause in it. Um, so they're very common. Um, and know, if that clause is there, what is the, I mean, the, the most important effect of that is what? How does that affect whether they don't like it, they want to sue? That's, everybody says they show up in your office, I want to sue. I, you know, they, they've ripped me off. And you right. look at the contract and go, there's an arbitration clause. Right. Then and, what happens? And there's a long history of, of enforceability and non-enforceability in arbitration clauses. But the current state of the law is that arbitration clauses are almost universally enforced. Uh, and so if you've signed one of these form agreements and it has an arbitration clause in it, it's a very good chance you're going to go to arbitration. Even, so you can't, even if you tried to file a lawsuit, you would get before the judge early on and they would say, this case can't go forward until you've you've fulfilled the arbitration requirement in the contract. Yes, that's exactly right. The other side will will come into court and force an arbitration, and then you'll have to go arbitrate the dispute. And, and you know, arbitration in itself isn't a bad thing. It just depends on the context. If you have two businesses that, are, that have equal bargaining power, and they decide when they enter into an agreement that they want to arbitrate their disputes, that often works very well for them because it's typically cheaper. It, get, it gets done more quickly than litigation does. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you get, it's much more flexible. And, and arbitrations tend to settle more quickly. The problem arises in this consumer context when you've got somebody who's buying a cell phone, not reading the agreement, and then later on when they're unhappy with the service or they feel like fees have been imposed improperly on them, they want to sue, they can't. They have, in effect, waived their right to a jury trial. They've waived their right to go to court. And they have to go and select an arbitrator in order to resolve their dispute. And, and although arbitration can be inexpensive, less expensive than court in the long run, on the front end, arbitration requires a, an outlay of cash. So you've mentioned a, a couple times about the you know, current state of the law. So arbitration wasn't always given that level of weight, was it? It's really in the last what, almost three years, there have been some really significant cases that have changed how this plays out. That's right. Again, we have to remember that in the, we're talking in the consumer context now. Right. Uh, there, there are really two clauses at issue. One's an arbitration clause, and the other clause is something called a class action waiver. So tell us what does that mean? Because most of us have never, I mean, we see it in the news, but so Actually, yeah. we're heading into our first break here. So when we come back, let's talk about what is a class action waiver and why does that have so much impact in these decisions? You're listening to Wagner and Winnick in the Law. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do 
some working during that time and some savings. So I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them. And Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy LaRevere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Welcome 
Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Wagner. And our guest in the studio today is Daniel Lamb. Daniel Lamb's an experienced trial and appellate lawyer. And we've asked him to help us understand the issues related to arbitration, particularly binding arbitration as it applies to consumers. And just before we went on the break, we'd raise the issue of how an arbitration clause combined with was it an anti-class action? Oh, that's probably not the technical term. Class action waiver. A typically. class action waiver clause really affects things. So, so tell us a little about how that comes into play. Okay. Well, a class action is uh, a legal procedure that allows a number of people to consolidate their claims. So as long as they've been, they have the same kind of claim and it's against the same party, it results from the same activity by that party, then they can bring all of their claims in one lawsuit. And that gives them a tremendous amount of leverage. To give you an example, if, if, if you have a, a credit card and the credit card provider suddenly decides to increase his late fees from $15 to $30 without giving proper notice and you get hit with a fee, well, you're going to be upset. But you're but, probably not going to sue over $15 a month in a, a fee. Exactly. But, but if, if there's a million of you... <laughs> That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah, and then you can bring that lawsuit, and the, and the credit card companies can listen to that because the potential exposure is huge in the in those circumstances. Well, along with arbitration clauses, uh, uh, businesses have typically been including what's called a class action waiver, in which not only do you agree that you won't go to court, but you agree that you won't bring a class action even as a part of an arbitration. Well, that effectively means that the consumer has his $15 claim and that's it. Uh, and he doesn't really have a mechanism to get any relief other than calling the company and yelling at him. He, he's not going to bring a lawsuit because it's cost prohibitive to do that. Well, Daniel, let me, let me ask you to clarify something on that. Does that mean that that consumer cannot serve as the class representative or just not participate at all as a class member? Either. Okay, so it, it, it signals really the demise of the initiation of a class action. Is that the impact? That's right. I mean, it, you know, obviously you could file the class action, but the defendant's going to come into court and move to compel arbitration. And the class representative is then going to have to arbitrate his claims individually. So that's, it's, it's a really powerful contractual tool then for any type of company that has you know, vast numbers of contracts, particularly a vast number of contracts of small amounts. And, Correct. And you gave those examples like a cell phone or, or club membership, right. things along those lines. And, and, you know, Credit it, card it, fees. It, the, it, the, the impact is so, much, is so great that for a long period of time, class action waivers were not enforceable. Uh, it, 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 because the courts they, just thought they were unfair to the consumer. It was an unjust result, so mm -hmm. they wouldn't enforce these clauses. Um, but it, around 2013, fairly recently, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called ATTV Concepcion. And in that case, they decided, you know what? Class actions are enforceable. You've agreed to them. There's no reason under contract law that they shouldn't be enforced. And the Federal Arbitration Act preempts any state law our decision that would hold that they're not enforceable. Well, that's a huge change of law. First of all, the, the fact that they change it to weighing in, f in favor of enforceability, and then this idea of state preemption right. also is a double whammy. So a state can't say, well, I don't care what the federal law says. In our state, 
this is going to be the law. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's, it, it, it had such impact that you're beginning to see now courts trying to figure out a way to get around it, agencies figuring out ways to, to get around it. In other words, the, the, uh, the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, if I've got that right, uh, has promulgated regulations which would prevent any uh, entity that's part of its regulatory group uh, to include class action waivers and contracts. They're not enforceable. And if, if they include them, they can't go into court and try to get class actions dismissed. And you see it, Medicare is doing the same thing. And DOE, the Department of Energy, is prohibiting schools that it regulates from including class action waivers in their contracts. So, you know, there's kind of this ebb and flow. You've got a decision from the Supreme Court saying that reaching a result that has some fairly draconian you know, impact. But at the same time, you have the courts then and the agencies figuring out how to come back and see what happens. So well, that's, Senator Daniel, that's interesting. So Concepcion, actually, the ruling from that case was that the class action waiver is valid. It's correct. permissible to include it. Correct. It, it, not, only, then, not only can you include it, but you can enforce it. Okay, so it's enforceable. Right. And let's right. talk a little, just, I want to talk a little bit about that enforceability because sometimes you know, uh, non-lawyers don't really understand that you could have a, a document that says certain things that are pretty clear, but if it's not enforceable, or as you mentioned to me on our drive up here, if it's a regulatory requirement that you want to enforce and there's, there's really no tool to enforce it, it doesn't matter that it's on the books it doesn't get enforced. And you gave an example of one of the states that had a a, a payday loan law. Exactly. Tell, tell, that's a great story. Tell in, about that. In North Carolina, it's against the law to operate a payday, to be a payday lender in effect. Um, but the statute relies, as many statutes do, on private citizens and private lawsuits to enforce it. Um, so as And after Concepcion, uh, all of the payday lending contracts have class action waivers in them. The result of that is there were lots of class action, there were lots of uh, payday lenders in, in North Carolina, even though it was against the law to operate it, because nobody could bring the lawsuits that needed to be brought in order to shut these people down. It's a, it's a really an ironic situation. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, I'm curious about history, Daniel, and I wondered about this. Um, the, in, you know, in contracts class, when we talk about formation, I always like to kind of go back into the classroom a little bit. Um, I recall learning about uh, adhesion contracts, contracts of adhesion, those that are very one-sided. And then the other, which I think is really more of a performance defense, or often is bundled as one, is unconscionability. Um, when historically did this practice of including the arbitration clause start? I think there have been arbitration clauses in contracts you know, for, for as long as I can remember anyway. It's been, it's been fairly standard. For a long period of time, nobody tried to enforce those uh, because class action waivers weren't enforceable in most states. And, the, and so what, what you could do is you'd, you'd be in the worst possible result. You'd be in a class arbitration. Uh, in other words, a class action brought as an arbitration. There'd be no appeal rights. There'd be no rules of evidence applied. So most businesses, rather than take that risk, would simply just litigate this dispute and not try to enforce the arbitration clause. 
You know, Stephen, I was surprised, and the notes I took before we started the show is that the the Federal Arbitration Act was actually passed in 1925. So it's it's not a new law, right. but it's as you said, it really wasn't until fairly recent years, the 2000s, in which it's had some teeth that really took off. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Ar- arbitration. You know, what we're talking about here are are pre-dispute agreements, right? We agree that if a dispute arises, we're going to go to arbitration. All right. Well, let's come back on that topic after this short break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law, and we're talking about the concept of arbitration and particularly binding arbitration and how it affects consumers and business-to-business arrangements. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy Laubardier, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov. Have you thought about a law degree? 
Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitchell Winnick along with my co-host Stephen Wagner. And our guest today is Daniel Lamb, unexperienced corporate attorney. We're talking about the issues and learning more about arbitration, the effect of binding arbitration. Before I go a little further with Daniel, Stephen, did you ever think about maybe you'd want to be an arbitrator? Not just be a partisan party, but as a practicing lawyer, you ever think about things like that? I do, yeah. I mean, anything that would help polish up my objectivity is always something I'd welcome. Certainly. <laughs> How's oh, that? Oh, God, you. Op- I, I'm. I am just going to avoid walking down that one because you know I. Did that almost sound prepared? It almost does, <laughs> and and I'm not going to. You're just baiting me on this term objectivity. <laughs> I can. I can. Abs- I'm not falling for it, Stephen. I'm just not going there. <laughs> uh, but so, Daniel, we've we've been beating up on arbitration a bit. You know, it is kind of that specter of it's it's a bad thing for consumers. You know, you you can't join in a class action. You can't initiate a class action. You're bound by it. You're giving up essentially some constitutional rights. You don't have your right of jury trial. You don't have a right of appeal. So I mean, they. These things seem bad, and yet the Supreme Court, and you said 2013, has come down to weigh heavily in support of it. 
Okay, there must be some good things. Obviously, they're used broadly. So right. get, let's let's balance out a little bit and be a little more fair on the arbitration side. Good, good. <laughs> I, and I think it has to do with the context it comes up in. In a business-to-business situation where you have two businesses with equal bargaining power who decide that they want to resolve their disputes quickly and cheaply and avoid having to go to court if they have a if they have a contract dispute it's it's very effective and it's very useful for a number of reasons one is it's much more informal than a court proceeding uh there's one arbitrator it's typically done in a conference room the rules of evidence may not apply probably will not apply it gets handled much more quickly because the arbitrator's more flexible in terms of scheduling. You can do a lot of things on the telephone, which you can't do I in I was court, about to say, you know? a good friend of mine is an arbitrator in Texas uh, with AAA, the American Arbitration Association, and, and the vast majority of his business disputes are done by conference call. They right. schedule it. It's, the parties are in different states, in some cases different countries, and they're able to do it all by phone, right. which you wouldn't be able to do in traditional litigation. Right. So, I mean, you can get to a decision in an arbitration in a, in a matter of months, two or three months. Whereas a typical court proceeding is going to take at least a year and sometimes two or three years to, to get to a resolution. And I think a lot of individuals don't realize that it it's the it's the back and forth leading up to litigation that frequently drives up the cost. All the what we would call discovery. You know, Correct. It could be tens of thousands of pages that have to get produced, sorted, categorized, summarized, and I mean, it's just somebody's running a clock on all of that cost. And, and you, can, you can't avoid all that. You know, the other, the thing we haven't mentioned is that you can, you can tailor your arbitration as a part of your arbitration agreement. You can provide that there will be no discovery. You can provide that the hearing will occur within a set period of time, for example. So you have a lot of ability to say how this arbitration is going to be conducted and what's going to happen in that arbitration. You know, um, Daniel, just I, I don't mean to crash the party on, on, on the positives. I do agree <laughs> with you from business to business. I do, absolutely. But your mention of the rules of evidence being relaxed or diluted or uh, you know, perhaps not enforced. No, I thought that, we might hear you ba- uh, back from oh, you on yeah, those I know. issues. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm getting my, my, my mini hackles up just uh, a little bit here. Spoken, and, spoken as our evidence professor at San Luis Obispo College of Law. <laughs> right, right. Well, so, so, and the fact that discovery can be curtailed or that the parties can agree to limit the, uh, the scope of discovery. You know, those things, I, I have a hard time parking those in the positive column. Yeah, I, I hear you and I agree with you. One of the reasons I don't like arbitration as a practicing lawyer is because the rules of evidence typically don't apply. The arbitrator can listen to whatever he wants. And of course, the rules of evidence have grown up over centuries in order to protect people and make sure that only relevant, reliable evidence is admitted. But you know, if, if you flip it over and look at it from the other side, A business who wants a quick result, they just want to know what the rules are. They now have a dispute about a contract. They want to know who's right and who's wrong, and they want to get it done and get it over with, and they select an arbitrator, and they can trust the arbitrator to reach a sound decision, even if he doesn't necessarily uh, follow the rules of evidence. So it's a trade-off. You know, I, I think yeah, a, no. a business decides I'm going to forego that protection of the evidentiary rules in order to get myself a relatively inexpensive and quick result. Uh, the other thing I give yeah. up, I, I give up my right to appeal pretty much. 
Um, I mean, there is some limited uh, appeal under the Federal Arbitration Act, but it's it, it, it's not very effective. Well, in, in fact, and then, it's yeah. Well, excuse me. See, I was just say that you, very limited is is right. Uh, there's really only four aspects that can be raised that would allow you to appeal an ar a binding arbitration agreement under the Federal Arbitration Act. And let me just run through them really quickly. Yeah, one, the award was procured by corruption, fraud, or undue means. I mean, you want to talk about a high standard that you have to prove, corruption, fraud, or undue means. Number two, that there was uh, partiality on the, on the part of the arbitrator so that they've shown a clear partiality from one side or the other. Number three, the arbitrators were guilty of misconduct in refusing to postpone a hearing, uh, even if sufficient cause was shown. And number four, that the arbitrators exceeded their powers or so imperfectly executed their power that a, a mutual final and definite award just was not even possible. So I mean, now, those are some pretty strong words, but really, Stephen, you've talked in the past about your know, standards that have to be met for a uh, court to take action. I think you'd have to agree these are pretty high standards that would have to be met to turn an arbitration over. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, right, almost rising to the level of nefarious conduct. You know, yeah, I, I would agree. But one other point to make here on business-to-business -business arbitration is how, how frequent it is. I mean, this will give you a sense of how... How much businesses like it? Uh, the AAA, which is the American Arbitration Association, probably the association, probably the biggest arbitration panel, uh, released figures for for uh, 2015, uh, which showed that over 8,000 arbitrations were initiated, with claims of over 16 billion dollars. Uh, to give you a sense, in all of the federal courts across the country. 25,000 contract actions were commenced. So arbitrations are about 30%, a third of the number of, uh, of contract claims brought by businesses. So arbitration is, you know, it's a significant factor in, in resolving disputes. Yeah, I guess, and Daniel, you know, the other thing I would, I would add, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on, is that often businesses build in the potential for litigation as part of the business model. I'm assuming that they do the same for arbitration. Yes, I think so. I mean, in the sense that it's, it's actually just part of doing business. The expense of it. And so this one, right. let me ask you some of this. One, and we probably won't get a chance to get all the way through this before the next break, but I've read about, I haven't actually used one, but there are a number of computer models that this, this, where they're using artificial intelligence at that claim that you put in all of your parameters, the opposing party puts in their parameters, and that the computer software itself can render an opinion. Now I know. So it's, you know, this is radio. You don't get to see Daniel paling to the, the color of a piece of paper here. <laughs> yeah. But what's you know, there's discussion that well, if you're going to have it kind of lockstep arbitration, why can't a computer do it? I've I've heard the same thing. I've never participated in one of those, but I, I have read about them. There's not much role for lawyers in those. So no, there isn't. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe it works. Maybe ultimately that that'll be our court proceeding. You know, there'll be a Univac computer sitting up there on the bench, and that'll it'll resolve the disputes. I don't know. Yeah. What's what's the IBM computer that that 
plays chess and has done all these things that has his own Deep Blue? No, that was the earlier one. The um, Watson. Watson. Watson, that's it. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> there you go. I know we're coming up on we're coming up on another break, but I'm curious about AAA and and their role. Uh, are they the the dominant uh, player in arbitration, Daniel? Well, they're certainly one of them. They they probably are the largest. Uh, there's another organization called Jams. Judicial Arbitration and Mediation Service, which is also a very big provider of arbitration. And, and what these companies do is they maintain rosters of arbitrators. Uh, and, and so if you contract with them to handle your arbitration, they'll provide a hearing room, they'll provide a court reporter if you want one, and they'll send you out a list of arbitrators for the parties to choose from. All right, so when we come after the, come back after the break, let's talk a little about other kind of companies. We've talked about really big companies, but I, I suspect arbitration might come into play with smaller mom-and-pop businesses as well. So do not go away. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Don't go away. We will be right back. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to... To fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a, a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go, so it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at ftc.gov. 
Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at ftc.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Our guest today is Daniel Lamb. Daniel Lamb's an experienced trial and appellate attorney who's helping us walk through and understand better the aspects of arbitration. Uh, much to my surprise, and, and my guess is to many consumers' surprises, that there are binding arbitration clauses in many of the day-to-day -day transactions that we that we conduct. Uh, and Daniel, in fact, before I, I want to talk about international in a second, but you know, you and I had talked offline that what you say every time you update your software and you click and say I accept, the odds are that in that click-through contract, there's going to be a binding arbitration agreement. Yeah, they certainly are. They're almost. <laughs> and we and we click right through it, right? Right. I've never actually read one ever, Stephen. Have you actually stopped to click and read, downloaded and read one of those contracts? I did it once on a dare. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now wait. So, Daniel, this is actually your business. Do you stop and read through those click-through contracts? I can't say I do. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I mean that's so that's that's really the kind of an amazing part about this. So we all know we the three of us we absolutely know that they're there, and yet we don't even go through to see if these clauses are in it. Well, you know the the thing is, Mitch, what are you going to do about it? It's well, like, there you it's go. It's a form contract, right? You know, and and whoever you're dealing with doesn't have the authority to modify it typically, right. and so if you don't want to if you don't want the software update, fine, don't don't click through. But right. you know those yeah, are your no, choices. That, that's yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Dana, because I often wonder. So you're you're at Acme Electronics Store and you're at the counter about to leave with your goods that are sold for over five hundred dollars. So you sign through everything, but you're not going to hold up the line and ask for time to read through it all, right? <laughs> yeah, I've never seen it happen. Yeah, no, I, that's that's really true. So so it is important for people to know how this functions because you could very easily think that you have rights and be quite surprised to find out that the, the practical reality is that you have in a fair bargained exchange contracted away your right to sue a company if that contract, even if it's a click-through contract, uh, has a binding arbitration uh, clause in it. So so we only have a, a little bit left in this fourth quarter, but I, I want to talk a little more about international law because it, it dawns on me that as you were talking earlier about the costs related to litigation, if if you're in an international business, the costs related to, inter, in, to litigation could really be extraordinary. And there might even be arguments as to where you would have a lawsuit be and and I mean so I just I just can see so many complications. So I would expect that you would see arbitration clauses probably in every international contract. Is is that been your experience, Daniel? I, I think you see you see them very frequently in international mm -hmm. contracts for just the reason you say. Neither side really understands or maybe doesn't understand the laws of the other side. And it's it's easier just to agree upon a, a set of procedures and uh, a, an arbitrator to resolve the dispute, a place where it's going to happen. Uh, and that way you can control the discovery rules. You can, in effect, write your own procedure. And so you're not dependent on the laws of, of whichever country is... is, is uh, is bring our business is bringing the dispute, and I would assume there are probably or international organizations similar to AAA that we talked about earlier that provide these kind of international services. Right, there are that have been around for a long time. Probably the most famous is the International Chamber of Commerce for international arbitrations, but there's also one called Uncitral, which is U N C I T R A L, which also provides facilities and uh, provide arbitrators. To select, yeah. and usually these are these are blue ribbon organizations for sure. Yeah, because Stephen, can you imagine you know negotiating on behalf of one of your clients, and and knowing that one of the things you signed away is that the should there be a dispute, the contract was going to be in a foreign country in a foreign venue, and it could be a multi year contract, and you, you have no idea what those laws have done in the interim years. Yeah, that that would be difficult to manage. Absolutely. So one last thing I'd like to talk about. So we've talked about big companies, and, and this makes a lot of sense for these giant national and sometimes multinational companies with, with thousands, if not millions, of, of contracts with consumers. But are there going to be times when a small company, a mom-and-pop company, would want to make sure that if they're in regular types of contracts that there might be a binding arbitration contract in, 
uh, clause as well? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, if a, if a small business is dealing with other businesses uh, and, and they're in a supply situation uh, or they're purchasing, uh, it, it may make sense for them to consider whether they want to resolve these disputes in, a, in an efficient and more cost-effective manner. And so they would have an arbitration clause. And, and you know, a, a small business that deals with the public uh, that sells products uh, to a substantial variety of people um, may want to have an arbitration clause that would that would protect it from lawsuits. Uh, so you, so know, you might sued. not need millions of clients no. in order for this. I, to I work. mean, you know, a class action can be as few as a hundred people. So if you've got a hundred different customers and and you know you're worried about someone bringing a class action against you, which could put you out of business. You might think about an arbitration clause with a class action waiver. It's we've, not just big companies. Right, and we've, you know, I kind of default and think about products, but is there any reason you wouldn't consider this for services as well? Not at all. Not at all. Services work just as well. Yeah, and, and I would think that, that, was, yeah, that that might particularly work well in a service industry contract because proving up service questions in a traditional litigation setting could be very expensive yeah, and very lengthy. That's right. That's right. You know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, has done a recent study on arbitrations, and they found that arbitration clauses exist in about 81% of prepaid charge card contracts <laughs> to show you how prevalent they are, you know? About 50% of credit card loans uh, have arbitration clauses and class action waivers in them. So it's, I mean, these things are everywhere. So I guess it's no surprise that these cases have actually gotten all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Not at all. In fact, there have been four or five decisions. You know, arbitration sounds like something that maybe is sort of tangential to most people's lives, but it's really not. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. We really appreciate having you on the show today. That's Daniel Lamb, appellate lawyer and commercial lawyer. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. A reminder that you can hear an archive of today's program at wagnerandwinnick.com or listen to us on voiceamerica.com. Until next week, please remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer.